Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 119. I know that's a shocker to you, but Psalm 119, and this morning we're going to spend our time in verses 17 through 24. You all right, Joe? Okay. Psalm 119, verses 17 through 24. These are the words of God. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are the men of my counsel. In last week's message, uh, we connected some important dots Uh, In the life of King David, several points were made concerning how we gain knowledge or how we arrive at our understanding, our epistemology, you remember that word. David learned through a lineage of faithful men and women who understood the value of God's word as well as the need to teach that word to the next generation. And I hope that we understand that that is our responsibility. Whether we're a mom or a dad or, or a disciple of Jesus, every one of us has that commission to go and to share that word. We can identify with this on uh, one or more levels as, I think, individuals in that uh, most of us have had the benefit of a really good school teacher who taught us when we were growing up, or uh, some of you may have also uh, been like me and had the privilege of having parents who taught you about the Lord and about His way. But no matter, there's a teacher and there's somebody to guide you and to shape you and to help you in these things. Today, what I want to do is I want to take another look at David's life to understand more fully who his counselors were. So we're going to see this, I think, in a new light for some of you. And I want to show that many of those counselors, I would argue all of those counselors, are in fact intended to be your counselors, my counselors, as well today. So we're going to walk through this verse by verse. That's our our model. Uh, Walk through it verse by verse. But uh, along the way, we're also going to connect a really interesting story from 1 Chronicles chapter 17 through chapter 29. So, starting at verse 17, again, here is what David says. He says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Now, at a quick glance, I think uh, we look at this term and we assume uh, an uncharacteristic request on David's part. And I'll explain what that means as we go. But uh, the word bountiful is synonymous with the term abundance. But the, the temptation that we face, or what we often go to, is that, is that we, we assume that David is actually requesting material abundance. We're saying, we're, we're hearing David's words say, God, give me more stuff. But this is where proper interpretation matters. This is where we need to explore the meanings of words and their use in context. I've quoted this many times. Uh, uh, Dr. 
Michael Heiser likes to say that words don't mean anything, but that people mean things by words. And, and this is really common sense to us if we'll give our hearts and minds to it. Um, all of our words come from somewhere. They come from us trying to relate something to something else, right? And so, um, for example, we, we know that the word love means something according to Scripture, but love has come to mean something else in our world. We, uh, as I say a lot, we've either mystified love or we've misdefined love. We've done this with faith. We've done this uh, biblically with other uh, terms. We've done this with things like spiritual deadness and all of those things. We, we're not tracking with what the original authors meant when they use those words. Because unlike mathematics, uh, language is not that kind of a science. It is a science that has absolutes. There is a mooring. There is an anchor point to a word. Uh, but over time, it begins, to sh- it begins to shift or it begins to change. I think many of you are familiar with Google. And if you Google a term, you can actually see now uh, the progression of that word's usage over time. You'll see when it was used more frequently or the time when it was like that was a buzzword. And then you'll see most of these really cool words in our day is like three people use them, (laughs) right? Because it's just, it's weird. We've dumbed everything down, it seems. But uh, words mean something. And in order to derive a proper interpretation of a word, what we often have to do is go to far more than a lexicon or a dictionary, Uh, Biblical studies, biblical word studies are great things. You should look up words. You should study what words mean. But if you rely solely on that and you do not go to the context to what the word means, you will often be mistaken. Uh, Contrary to uh, an interpretation of the Bible that many of you have probably heard of, I I can't remember the name for the life of me right now, but many of you have heard of the Bible uh, where when you're reading, it'll give you a couple of options of the terms that you're, you're reading. This is seriously problematic. Why is this problematic? Not because those terms don't mean those things, but because the author meant something specific when he wrote it. And so it's not, I, I hope you know this, biblical interpretation is not multiple choice. You're like, well, I was thinking A, but I'm going to go with B because it suits me better. No, you don't get to do that, okay? And so when it comes to understanding terms, we have to look to context. So that's what we're going to do with this term bountiful this morning. In Psalm 13:6, David used the same exact Hebrew term, term pronounced gamal, and the context allows us, as always, to see what's meant. It also shows us what our response should be when God does deal bountifully with us, and he does this a lot. David said in Psalm 13:6, he says, "I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me." Okay, so you see the response, just extra credit. What are you supposed to do when God deals bountifully with you? Sing. You're supposed to worship God because he is a good God. Now, again, what does it mean by bountiful? God's bountiful dealing in this context is justice and salvation to David from the onslaught of all of his enemies, and he has plenty of them. We can see this a bit clearer in Psalm 116, verse 7, where David says this. He says, return to your rest, O my soul. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Well, how do we get there, Nathan? Well, first of all, let's recognize this little self-talk that David gives, okay? And I want to make a point about self-talk here. David literally says to himself, return to your rest, O my soul. 
Self-talk is not tragic, okay? It's not tragic, unless it's probably your version of (laughs) self-talk. Yay, Nathan, thanks. Self-talk that says, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, is not biblical. This is dumb, okay? You're trying really hard to encourage yourself and build yourself up. But the self-talk that we see David uh, employ over and over, and others in Scripture, is a self-talk that looks like this, that says, uh, return to rest, soul. Return to trusting your Lord, soul. Submit yourself to your king, soul. There's a self-talk you should probably employ more often, right? In other words, Nathan, get in line with Jesus. That's the kind of self-talk that we need to employ. So he offers a little bit of this self-talk, and then the context shows what's going on. All of this communicates that God dealing bountifully with David meant that he was providing David a return to peace and rest. You need to hush, baby. You need to, uh, that, that David wanted a return to both peace and rest. Another way that we might see this is God bringing a cessation from striving from running, from fear, and I think all of us can relate to the need for this kind of rest. Can I get an amen? We all want this kind of thing, and David experienced that, and that was the bounty of the Lord for him in his life. Defining the word correctly enables us to cast away the foolish notions of prosperity as the modern church has adopted, but it also shows us the continuity within the rest of God's word. Consider these words from Solomon David's son and what he learned from his father. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Keep deception and lies far from me. Keep me, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane your name. Solomon clearly internalized his father's teaching, didn't he? He accepted what David says. Listen, I I want you to deal bountifully with me, but he doesn't have any notion of prosperity inside of this. He didn't want too much, and he didn't want too little. Can I get an amen on that one? I don't want too much, but I sure don't want too little, okay? And so he doesn't want too little, uh, knowing that either could derail him, and this is important, either of these can derail his heart from the true focus of God. Too much or too little will derail any of us from following after Jesus. The essence of Solomon's request here is what we would call contentment. Yes, let's all say that word out loud together. Contentment. Now let's say it as Americans. Contentment. Because we struggle with this. Let's just be honest. Confessing our sins, we struggle with contentment. We want more, more, more. But contentment, this is true peace. This is true rest. It's no wonder the scripture tells us that we are to be content in all things. Absolutely content in all things. Now let me, let me zoom in on Proverbs 30 verses 8 and 9. Just, uh, just for you, for a little bit, again, of extra credit. I think that this is helpful for all of us. You notice what Solomon says. He says, I, I don't want you to give me too much, right? I don't, want, I don't want too much, but I don't want too little. And then he says this line. He says, feed me with the food that is my portion. That's a really powerful line, isn't it? That God has a portion for you. He has a portion for me. Feed me with what is my portion. Now look at this. Here he goes on. He says, that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Do you know what the tendency is for you if you get too much? You forget who God is. 
That's our tendency when we have too much. And what we say is, no, 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 God, give me everything because you're, you're a good God and you just want me to be rich and prosperous and all this other stuff. You know he's smarter than you, right? And so he knows your heart better than you, right? And so he looks at you and says, okay, too much. I'm not even going to be a magnet on your refrigerator. I'm not, nobody's going to know me in your household. This is why Solomon says, I actually don't want too much, Lord. I don't want to forget you. But look at the next line. He says, or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of the Lord. He doesn't say that being in need profanes the name of the Lord. He doesn't say that poverty is a problem. He says what you do in poverty is the problem. And that is that in poverty, you might be given to theft. This is a covenant member of God's kingdom here, by the way, right? This is Solomon. This is kind of, he's kind of the dude, you know? And so he says, don't, don't let me have too little that I would steal. Because what happens when he steals? He doesn't bear the image of the one who made him. See, this is our trouble, church. Why should we ask God to not give us too little, to provide for us just enough, to get us through, to make us content and move us forward? Because, number one, we don't want to blaspheme his name among the Gentiles. You know that that's possible? So every time Christians are out uh, uh, kind of cheating the system, we're out kind of, uh, just let's just push our taxes just a little bit the wrong way so that we can do this. Now, of course, nobody's looking at you. Well, the IRS is, but nobody's, nobody's looking at you, right? But if you're cheating, if you're pushing this to that level, the struggle is that, that you run the risk of defacing God. You, you run the risk of blaspheming the name of God. So Solomon says, don't, don't give me too little because here's what I know is in my wicked little heart. I'm going to take. <laughs> I know that that's there. I know what's in me. Don't give me too little, Lord. But please don't give me too much because when you give me too much, you're the first one to go in my list. That's a, that's a struggle we all have, church. And if you think you're better than Solomon, well, maybe we should have some counseling sessions. So Solomon clearly internalized all of what his dad taught, and I think that that's beautiful. So let's move back down to Psalm 119, verse 17. Here's what it goes on to tell us. It tells us the reason behind David's request. He says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. David desired peace, he desired rest, and he desired those so that he could focus on keeping God's word. If I have the rest that Jesus provides, he is my Sabbath rest, amen? He is our Sabbath rest, and if we really walk in him, if we really rest in him, we should be more free and more willing to keep his word. Why don't we keep God's word right now? Maybe we're not resting enough. That's just my suggestion. Maybe we're not at peace enough in this. So, is peace a requirement for keeping God's word? No, it's not a requirement for keeping God's word. David's request in no way provides us with an excuse that says, if we don't have peace, then we don't have to obey. You have to obey. Smile. Take your mask down and smile for me. Okay, right? You have to obey. We are always to obey. What David is saying, though, is that uh, in a time of peace, in living out God's commands in his word, uh, in a time of peace, we will live out his commands with a greater joy in our life. Isn't that cool? How many of you want to live out God's commands with greater joy? 
course you do. Of course you do. Rest in the peace of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. Okay, verse 18. Uh, This is a great line because we sing songs with these lines all the time. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Psalm 119.18. Within verse 18, David uh, made another that request. Okay? He asked God to open his eyes so that something would happen. That he could behold the wonderful things of God's law. Now I'm going to be talking to Mark Williams just for a second. No. Uh, a few weeks ago, though, Mark Williams talked about loving God's word but having to grow to like it. He loved God's word but having to grow to like it. And I know that many of you feel the same exact way. But verse 18 gives us a practical step that if followed if followed, will not only lead to a love for God's word, but it will also take us over that threshold to a like for God's word. We need to, like King David, ask God to open our eyes. We need to ask God to open our eyes. What does this mean, to open our eyes? Well, it doesn't mean physical sight. It doesn't mean physical sight. Or the ability to read God's word. Those things are great. But that's not what we're talking about here. The Pharisees could read mighty fine, and they were well-versed in the Scriptures. How many of you know that? They were well-versed in the Scriptures, better than we are in many, many ways. But their problem, according to Jesus, was that they thought they knew the Word, and yet they missed who it was speaking of. They were well-versed in the words on the page, but that signpost that was pointing to Jesus... They didn't get it. They couldn't catch this, okay? And so what we're talking about here is being able to spiritually see, right? David was well acquainted with this type of blindness. He calls it out many times in the Psalms. Ezekiel is also uh, very familiar with this kind of blind people. He calls them rebellious in Ezekiel 12 too. Um, Jesus quoted Isaiah about the same exact kind of blind people in Matthew chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. And Paul's parting shot to his Jewish audience in Acts 28 uh, was exactly the same. So, here's the deal. Eyes to see has everything to do with an ability to perceive truth. Eyes to see has everything to do with the ability to perceive truth. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the mere ability to take in information. Who cares if you can take in information? What's, what's the point if you can't see it, okay? We all need eyes to see. We all need ears to hear. Uh, and specifically uh, to discover or to explore the wonders of God's ways. But these spiritual senses don't appear out of sheer willpower. I need you to listen to me real quick. They don't appear out of sheer willpower. Yes, we must desire, which is a willingness, right? He, David says, open my eyes, God. That's a willingness on David's part. But God himself must be willing to give. Isn't this true? God must be willing to give. If he were not willing, then no amount of desire on our part would ever change our plight. It wouldn't change us at all. We would want, 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 but God is is being stingy maybe. Thankfully for us, he's not. God is willing. The Bible is abundantly clear that God gives grace to the Humble. God gives grace to the humble. This is who David was. Even as a man near and dear to God's heart, David still humbly understood that without opened eyes, he could not see the wonders of God's law. Is this true of you? 
Do you have enough humility to recognize that even though you're a Christian, a covenanted member of the kingdom of God, even though that's true, you, like David, need every day to say, God, open my eyes. Open my eyes to see the wonders of your word. You see, if you don't believe that, here's the stinging reality of your opinion about yourself. You think of yourself on par with God. You can figure it out. You got it all. You can discover it. No, 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 no. The depths of God's wisdom, we cannot plumb without his help. So we need to be asking him at all times, God, I need to see. I need you to help me. One of the wonders is that, uh, is that this uh, word of God gives great counsel. A few moments ago, uh, we looked at Psalm 13, and I want you to turn back to that if you have your Bibles. But Psalm 13, uh, and we saw how David's desire for God's peace or his bounty uh, was there. If we return our attention to verse 2, um, the second verse of Psalm 13, we will discover a significant contrast in the type of counsel that David is talking about. Look at this with me. It's very cool. Verse 2, David in despair says this, How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? You should underline that in your Bible. Because later in verse 5, he talks about trusting in God's loving kindness, which he knew because of God's word. The contrast shows this, that despair cannot be eliminated by seeking your own counsel. You will not look deep within your heart and your soul and reflect and find out how to move forward. It is simply beyond you. But not only will, we, will despair be eliminated, but it will be replaced with joy if the counsel we seek is God's word. Not our soul and not our heart. Why should you not seek the counsel of your heart? It's desperately wicked, trust me. It's really important that we get this in our brains. David understood it. So how many of you have found yourself in constant or growing despair uh, the more you focused on your problems? Come on. Come on. You know what you're doing there? You just, you're just reflecting on your soul. You're just asking your heart what its counsel would be. This is not going to go anywhere. Could the reason be that you keep seeking counsel of yourself? I think the answer is emphatically yes. This isn't going to lead us anywhere, and it's one more reason why we need to abide in God's word uh, and abide in his counsel. And this is going to tie nicely into the very next verse. So uh, go back to Psalm 119. Verse 19 says this, I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. Now, I want you guys to really give me your attention on this because there's a lot in this particular point, and I think it's helpful. There's no doubt that you guys have heard uh, songs or declarations of things like, we're not home yet, or this place is not our home. Maybe you sing these songs, right? Uh, this is not our home. This is not our home. Although this is a romantic idea, these lyrics have rather questionable uh, aims to them, um, and at best are terribly ill-informed. First, they are deeply polluted by the stains of Gnosticism, which I'm going to explain. And then second, they're rooted in a non-biblical idea of going to heaven when we die. Uh-oh, Nathan's picking on dumb stuff. Watch this. So before I lose you on that comment, please just listen to me, okay? Let's deal with each of these issues in turn. The first one, the Gnostic idea. The Gnostic views all flesh uh, or physical realities as a kind of cancer. 
And this is just one of many Gnostic views. Gnostic views are also that there's hidden knowledge and only a select few know this and it's just nonsense, right? But the Gnostics view that physical realities and the flesh are a cancer and that they must be eradicated. This is accomplished by abandoning the flesh and focusing entirely on spiritual matters, okay? Now, I don't even know how that's possible since we are, well, people, fleshly people, right? So David revealed that being a stranger... Uh, in this world, had less to do with the passing physical body and nothing to do with it being wicked or uh, being beyond redemption, is a better way to say that. Uh, but he had, he had nothing to do with the passing of the physical body and more to do with his position as a steward before God. Okay, And as a steward, he lived solely by the sufficient and saving grace of Yahweh. How many of you know that you live solely by the sufficient and saving grace of Yahweh? You don't breathe without it. Maybe you don't know that. But this is important. With that in mind, let me delve into a piece of that story from 1 Chronicles that I shared at the beginning. What does David mean by calling himself a stranger? Listen to these words. Just listen to them and you'll, you'll hear verse 14 or you'll see verse 14 up on the screen. Then the people rejoiced because they had offered so willingly. The people of God were uh, fundraising for the temple of God. For they made their offering to the Lord with a whole heart, and King David also rejoiced greatly. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Listen to these words, really cool. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Sounds a lot like the Lord's Prayer, doesn't it? Huh, wonder where that came from. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Now there is a worship song, okay? Verse 14, it's on the screen. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. We have returned it. We've given back to you, Lord. You, uh, for we are, here's that word again, for we are sojourners before you, and tenants as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow. And there is no hope. The NIV actually translates this a pretty, uh, a, a very good way. It's a, it's a more accurate way. And that is, our, our days on the earth are like a shadow without hope. Meaning, without you, there is no hope. That's the NIV translation. So sojourners, tenants, strangers, all of these rightly understood are servants of God and a people without inherent rights to claim. You're a product of grace. There are no inherent rights to claim. Rather, the abundance we have comes by the grace of God, and it is entirely dependent on him. Consider the next verse, verse 16. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand. You gave it to us, and all of this is yours. Hebrews 11.13 refers to God's servants as strangers and exiles on the earth. Peter in his first epistle, uh, epistle, I keep saying epistle, 
I don't know where I'm getting that from, but it's okay, official. Anyway, Peter in his first epistle urges those uh, he calls aliens and strangers to do what? To abstain from fleshly lusts. In all of this, what the entire context is revealing, listen to me, church, the entire context is revealing is that the writers were talking to a people who lived by grace and who were servants of God, who considered themselves strangers in that way in the earth. They were not merely a people waiting to go to a great by and by. Simply not what the text says. So when David said, I am a stranger, do not hide your commandments from me, he was not saying anything about his physical location, nor was he believing God to be stingy and close-fisted. God was going to give him abundantly or bountifully, as we read before. So he's not, he's not panicking about God's character. Instead, he's admitting that as a steward and as a stranger, he was the object of grace. The object of grace. And that all he wanted was for God to show him more of the same. In a manner of speaking, David knew that in God he lived and moved and had his being. Solomon felt this same exact way. You can tell that dad's teaching had a great impact. Second Chronicles chapter 1, Solomon portrayed the perfect picture, in my opinion, of a man who was not of this world. A man who desired wisdom and knowledge over anything else. Verse 10 of Second Chronicles 1 says this, Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can rule this great people of yours? I need your wisdom. I need your knowledge. I need your understanding. But I'm your steward. I'm simply a product of grace here. These are your people, not mine. I didn't create this system. So, how are we strangers in life? The whole of Scripture confirms that the identity has nothing to do with ridding ourselves of a physical body that's a cancer. Gnostics are wrong in that. And trading them in for purely spiritual ones. It also has nothing to do with a physical location. The book of Revelation is clear on this point. God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And where are we dwelling? In the new earth. Not in a new heaven. And who's coming to be with us? Not the other way around. God is going to dwell with us. So he's going to restore this, as the language suggests. And that, to me, is a beautiful picture. But we also see that we are to undergo a physical resurrection, not just a spiritual resurrection. So much for the, again, Gnostic idea there. So being a stranger in this life simply means that we are tenants of the grace that we've been freely given. You are a tenant of grace. That's why to whom much is given, much is expected or required. You are required much. Why? You're a product of grace. You're a steward of the king. We're servants and everything we have is from God's hand. In this position, we must humbly remember that even what we give to God was first given to us by God. I love it when, when I give my kids a dollar, I give my kids some sort of gift for working around the house or whatever, I gave it to them. It's even better when I give it to them for no apparent reason. And then I'm like, hey, can I have this back? And they're like, like, I just gave it to you, you know? But that's how we treat God. He's given us so much, and then it comes time to be generous and to care for people, and we're like, you know, retirement's coming quick, man. I mean, what's, that wasn't promised to you, by the way. Retirement, it's not in the Bible. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Uh-oh, my mom's mad at me right now. 
She just worked out her retirement. Anyway, okay, so being a stranger, what do we understand it to be? It means that we're stewards of the grace of God. We are tenants in this great kingdom. This is why David goes on to say in Psalm 119, verse 20, this. He says, my soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. God's word means so much to him because it's commanding the steward what to do. And David is longing for it. David's passion for the word of God is palpable here. He was a steward who lived off the grace of God's word and was crushed with longing for more of it. Anytime he felt he was dry. I hope that this is true of us, church. In language similar to that of Song of Solomon, David is longing for God's word like a lover for his companion. In Psalm 42, 1 and 2, uh, David longed as a deer panting for water, which is a matter of life and death. Psalm 119, 131, Psalm 63, 1, Psalm 119, 40, all of these communicate the exact same truth in slightly different ways. God's word was vital to David. He seemed to understand what Jesus so famously pointed out to the devil in Matthew 4, 4, and that is that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. A truth that we have forgotten. So we might ask ourselves this question, am I crushed with longing after God's ordinances? Am I crushed with longing? Do I want God's word more than I want the comfort of the one I love? Do I want God's word more than water or bread? The answer should be yes, and it should be yes for many reasons, not least of which is that God's word literally sustains your life. It's not only vital, it is your vitality, church. This is important for us to get. Let's keep moving. Verses 21 through 23. You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. This one's fun. Verse 21 is a fundamental truth statement, and you all need to hear it. God rebukes the arrogant and the cursed. He's not some cosmic hippie Jesus who loves everybody no matter their position. The arrogant... The arrogant, the cursed, those who wander from his commandments, he rebukes them, church. He rebukes them. Full stop. You can't wiggle around them. Following that, David wrote that he was not one of these arrogant people, and I don't believe that that statement makes him arrogant. I just believe he's acknowledging that he was one who desired God's statutes or God's ways. And therefore, reproach and contempt, although physical were in his life, were not part of God's plan for him. They were not uh, made to um, discipline him somehow. They could have been, and many times were, just the acts of vile, sinful men. How this was manifested is seen in verse 23. Princes sat and talked against him. This is going to hit home for some of you. We've all wrestled with wagging tongues and spiteful people. It's a challenging truth that James teaches us. He says that our tongues can set the world on fire. How many of you know that that's true? What's exceptionally hard, though, is when other people's tongues set your world on fire. Sure, you can set the world on fire, but other people's statements to you or com- uh, gossip to you or slander of you can set your world on fire, and there's nothing like it. 
David also provided us with the antidote for when people speak against us, for what we should do. This could come in the form of gossip, defamation, slander, ridicule, it doesn't matter. But David faced all of these things throughout his life. And while princes sat around and talked about David, what David did in response is he meditated on the word of God. Not only is that not an answer preachers tell you, it's far from a solution you employ. You're hearing gossip, you're hearing slander, what do you do? Call a buddy, call a friend, complain. This jerk said, no. First course of action, run to the word of God, and you're going to see why in just a second. You're going to see why, because this is so powerful. Verse 24, your testimonies also are my delight. They are the men of my counsel. What in the world is David talking about? The last half of that verse, if you translate it in the NASB or the ESV generally, it says they are my counselors. But the literal rendering of those Hebrew words is that your word are the men of my counsel. How does meditating on God's word help us in the face of personal attacks? The answer in the midst of chaos is you should listen to better voices. You should listen to better counselors. And you have a ton of them. They are calling out to you, church. And yet we go, I ain't got time for God's word. I don't understand. There's just too much stuff in my life. There's too much stuff. What do you do in response? You call up a buddy, you call up a friend, you start complaining. But what you ought to do is go, I got better voices to listen to. I'm tired of hearing the naysayers and the negativity of our world. Listen, contrary to popular belief, you will not fix the negativity of your world by muting and blocking everybody on Facebook. I've tried. It doesn't work, right? Number two, you will not rid your life of negativity by not watching the news. What you will, uh, how you will rid your life of negativity is abiding in his word and getting better counsel. This is what we need, church. So why aren't we there? Why aren't we this kind of people? Because for too long, pastors have just taught us that reading the Bible is a religious exercise. It's not just a religious exercise. There's better voices there. It's bread. It's water. It is better than the embrace of a lover. What? Yes, this is God's word. And we need to understand that. We need better counsel. Remember, David didn't have David, though. You know what I mean by that, right? David didn't just flip open to the book of Psalms and go, I'm going to do a study on Psalm 119 before I write it. (laughs) What? That doesn't make any sense. He didn't have that. But he had plenty of other counselors. Like who, Nathan? Moses, Joshua, Caleb. The faithfulness of Joseph. Do you notice that he says, your testimonies also are my delight? You know what a testimony is, right? Yes, it's synonymous in Psalm 119 for the word, the command, the law. But you have to understand that a testimony is the story of. And in all these cases, it's the story of God's faithfulness to his people. You want want to walk in a better way? You want to walk free and clear? You want to put off the voices in your head? Get better counselors. Trust a better Trust a better uh, voice inside of your life. God's word is the counsel that we need when life gets hard. And when we face people who relentlessly talk against us, we run to God's word. This counsel is better than social media. 
can I get a bigger amen than Barney? <laughs> and Barney, I want you shouting it next time. Anyway, it is better than social media. It's better than Facebook. It's better than those things. I am not suggesting that they're inherently evil. They're just tools. We just don't use them as tools. We bow at the altar of these things. And we let our life be joyful or miserable based on what people say. Trust the counsel of God's word. It's better than friends. It's better than family. God's word, according to Psalm 13, is even better than your own soul and your own heart. You, will, you cannot talk yourself up enough, church. You need to trust in the testimony and the evidence of who God is. David's counsel can be our counsel. If we'll trust it. So, let's tie all of it together. Each of us is a servant of God. As such, we don't brashly demand anything from God. We can boldly approach His throne. But there's no brashness in what we are. We are a people without inherent rights. We are a people of grace. We should appeal to God, and we should know that He will deal bountifully with us. What that means is that he will give us rest and peace and ceasing from our strife. I love that. I love that because I don't want to strive anymore. I don't want to strive in relationships. I don't want to strive financially. I don't want to strive in those ways. What I want to do is trust. And trust in one who says, I got you. Completely. The reason is quite simple. We want to keep God's word in joy. We know that he will open our eyes. We know that in acknowledging that, we are strangers living in a foreign world. It's not a locational issue though, please. In this life, we will face trial. We will face confusion. We will face hurt. Every one of you has your own stories. But in light of those things, there's a better counsel. There's God's word, and we need to trust it. Amen. So I hope that my, my aim as I grow up, as I get older, as I get uh, closer to my king, my aim is to share with you those deeper whys of what we do as Christians. There are deeper whys to prayer. There are deeper whys to reading God's word and meditating on it. There are deeper whys to fellowship. There's deeper whys to discipline. and There's just deeper whys to everything that we do. But we need to take the time and find out what God's word says those whys are. And today you get to leave with this really important why, and that is reading God's word provides you with better counselors. I'm tired of, of the counsel I get from the world. <laughs> I'm tired of the counsel that I get from even well-meaning people who might side with my opinion. What I want as I grow is to be in line with my king and my creator. There's nothing more joyful than that. So, I hope you guys will study your word. I hope that you'll give your heart to it. We're going we're gonna to take communion. There's greater whys behind that too. Um, we're going to take communion together as a church. And then as you go today, I hope that you're encouraged to, um, to abide in the counsel of, of David's counselors.
I hope you're willing to abide in the counsel of Paul's counselors. I hope you're willing to abide in the counsel of God's word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being faithful to us, for caring for us the way that you do. Your love is <laughs> your love is immeasurable. Your love does not fail. Your love is not fickle. Your love is great. And because of that, because of that, you left us with a great deal of counselors and the Holy Spirit to counsel us in every way of our understanding and a church to assemble together and teachers, pastors and shepherds to guide and fellow believers to sharpen us as iron sharpens iron. God, you, you loved us enough to not leave us nor forsake us in any way. That is a pleasure. That is a joy. We ask, Lord, that you'd help that sink into our hearts and our minds as we grow in Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.